0: Hi, Merry Christmas. At this point, I feel like my job is just to not screw up, because that's some fun stuff there. Uh, anybody else feel like we're just moments away from a, losing a child off the front of the stage? I, just hope, I was just really glad our insurance agent wasn't at this particular gathering, because that was disturbing. So, uh, because Christmas is really about two things, uh, Jesus and shopping, it seems, right, because this is the guy, like, this is, this is men's favorite day of the year. Right? Because you're now a year away from the next time you have to do all that again. Right, uh, So I thought it's appropriate to start with a story about a particular discount retail chain. In the late 1950s, there was a small, unknown company who had a very, very big idea. Their idea was to take discount retail to rural, small-town America. Uh, They they became the first company in in our nation's history to bet their future on this particular business model. And just after committing to it, they had an idea that further uh, pushed them into success because they had this idea of getting rid of the typical uh, lure your customers with certain discounted items. You know, like where you mark down a 12-pack of Coke and then you come in and you buy a turkey. They were like, we're not going to do that. Instead, they committed to an everyday low-price model. These guys were led by a CEO who was respected in many ways. First of all, for his passion for creating teamwork. Uh, he, his goal was that every, every store would feel like its own family. He also oversaw the creation of a very sophisticated but essential uh, information sharing system. And he also was really, really competitive. Uh, he was passionate not just about creating family, but also creating environments where people had to perform, where numbers were a part of the way they judged things and evaluated things. This company... Uh, had, had, you, had, had you bought their stock in 1970 and held it through 1985, that stock's value would have increased by 6,000%. They successfully defeated not only small-town Main Street stores, but they also took out their number one competitor, Kmart. When I was a kid, we called it came apart. <laughs> now, what company do you suppose I'm referring to? Yeah, if you said Walmart, that's a very, very good guess, but it's actually wrong. The company that I'm referring to is something called Ames Department Stores. Anybody ever shopped at Ames Department Stores? Wow, that's incredible. Nobody in the last gathering had even heard of Ames Department Stores. Ames Department Stores had these ideas four years before Walmart. For over two decades, they were very much uh, Walmart's superior. And yet today, where, where's Ames? And where's Walmart? Walmart, of course, is one of the largest corporations in the entire world. Ames is, is gone. They're dead. And no, there wasn't a merger. No, they weren't bought out. They failed. After over two decades of incredible success, they completely collapsed. Now, analysts ask this question, what, what happened? And one in particular, a man named Jim Collins, in a book called How the Mighty Fall, he suggests that perhaps the simplest explanation stems from uh, their leader, Walmart's leader. It seems that their leader, Sam Walton, was a very, very curious, humble man who had a penchant for questions. Sam Walton was the type of guy that didn't matter which room he was in, he behaved as though he was the dumbest one in the room. Always asking questions, always inquiring, always pretending like he had no expertise and everybody else had more of it than him. One story in particular captures, uh, they say, the ethos of Sam Walton. In the late 1980s, a group of Brazilian investors purchased a, a group, a, a string of discount retail stores scattered across South America. They won in their bid, and after winning the bid, they realized, we don't know anything about discount retail. They sent off 10 letters to 10 major discount retail chains in, in the United States and requested just one thing. Well, they requested a lot of things, but the one big thing was, could we come to the United States spend time with your CEO, learn about discount retail, and return to our country. Nine of the CEOs that were requested, of whom they requested time, either flat out didn't respond, or said, nah, thanks, but no thanks. One responded. His name was Sam Walton, and not only did he welcome them to come visit him in Arkansas, he invited them to stay at his house and offered to cook them dinner. They say that when they arrived in Arkansas, that these Brazilian men were kind of stumbling around outside the airplane terminal, They didn't quite know who Sam Walton was or what he looked like. And it was then that a man with white hair and a very modest 20-year-old pickup truck, single cab truck with a Labrador retriever in the front seat, dressed in a t-shirt and blue jeans, pulled up next to them and said, hey, can I help you guys? They said, yeah, we're looking for Sam Walton. He said, that's me. And they followed him to his house. Now, where it really gets interesting is they said by the end of the second day, while Sam Walton was standing at his kitchen sink doing dishes from the meal that he had just prepared for them, something dawned on these Brazilian men. They just spent two days with Sam Walton and they learned nothing because he interacted with them as though they knew everything. They didn't even get a chance to ask a question because he was the one asking them all the questions about Brazil, about their family, about South America, about business in South America, about how business in South America was different than business in North America. And they kind of had to have a powwow and agree, okay, let's all just agree that we're not going to let him ask any more questions because we're going to leave here having learned nothing. Have you ever noticed just how refreshing a good question is? I was thinking this week that we have this statement, a, a picture is worth a thousand words. But what's a question worth? H- have you noticed that, that a weekend of grief, say after a loss, is best summarized not with a statement, but with a question? Ever noticed that, that the most brilliant statements aren't these tightly packed isms, but they're questions? Now, I know this might sound like a strange way to start a Christmas Eve service, but for those of you that, like, maybe this is your first experience in church for a long time. Maybe you were raised in church. If there's one thing that you take from our gathering, I hope it's this. Questions are incredibly valuable. And God, the God of the Bible, Jesus, had a passion for questions. I know that we so often think of God as this bony-fingered person who puts it into the middle of our chest and tell, 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 and forces and threatens. I guess this morning I'd like to suggest that the opposite of true is true, that Jesus' way is the way of question. It's not that he doesn't hold convictions. It's not that he doesn't think there's certain things that are really important for us to wrap our lives around. It's that the way he taught them was via a question, via the permission to think it through. Just consider in your own life how refreshing a good question is. A couple years ago, our friend Kate, who is our worship arts leader, uh, I went to the airport to pick her up. You may recognize that she's from South Africa or Ireland or somewhere like that. She's actually from Australia, and I picked her up from the airport and brought her back to my house. This is when she was inquiring, moving from urban Sydney, Australia, uh, to urban Helena, Montana, When we pulled up to the curb, my my kids knew that she was coming to stay with us and just consider all of you in this place and what God might be doing here. And uh, my youngest son, who was probably five at the time, was sitting on the front curb. And we got out of the suburban and we started walking toward the house. And JR, our youngest, looked at her and said, hi. And she looked at him and said, good day, mate. And he looked at me and said, does she speak English? (laughs) (laughs) Two years worth of experience wrapped inside of a single question for our friend Kate. You know, Jesus was a lot of things, but certainly nothing more than a brilliant question asker. Whoa, wow, sorry. If your pacemaker just went out of rhythm, I apologize. <laughs> so one day he was walking through Jerusalem, and there was a region of Jerusalem where people who were born with the, without the ability to support themselves, people who t- in today's economy that, that we would support, people who couldn't work. Okay, is that, what, what is, do I need to do something? Do we have a microphone that's going out of range? And Okay, so can we kill Caleb or mute his microphone? <laughs> Either one will suit us just fine right now. <laughs> Jesus was walking through Jerusalem, and, and as he made his way into this, this region of people who, who couldn't support themselves. Now, the trick was uh, that, that though they couldn't support themselves, they formed community amongst themselves. They made their living by begging which means to say to them, like, hey, do you want to walk is a tricky thing because the moment they can walk, suddenly they're adult men, they're adult women who don't have the ability to feed themselves anymore, and suddenly they're alone because you can't beg if you can walk. And so Jesus walks up to one of them. And if you've ever tried to help somebody, you can appreciate the brilliance of his question. He walks up to one of them and doesn't tell anything. He just asks a question, do you want to get well? And anybody who's ever worked with people and served people can appreciate the brilliance of the question. There's another question he asked that summarizes for me hours and hours of therapy. And I suggest many probably or suspect many of you as well. One day he just simply says this, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Not a do statement, not a a threatening statement, just a question He took on one of humanity's greatest ills in another question just a few verses later. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Not a statement, not a threat, just a question. In Matthew 16, he asks another question. He says to his guys, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? See, I say all this to, to simply make this point. On Christmas Eve, we rally around a question. We rally around a question that's a couple thousand years old. We rally around a question that billions of people have weighed in on. They've come to their own convicted conclusions about. They have their own thoughts and opinions. The question, though simple, is of incredible depth. The question is simply, who is the baby in the manger? Like, who was it? And on Christmas Eve, I think it's important to recognize that we are not only dealing with this historic question, but we are dealing with a God who has the security to pose it to us as a question, to respect our freedom and allow us to deal with that question and come to our own convicted conclusions. And all of you have come to one. But I think Christmas might also be about reconsidering the question. For those of you that long ago decided he was nobody... Maybe there's value to just revisit the question. And for those of us who have long ago decided he was God, king of the universe, maybe Christmas is about reconsidering the question. The Magi did. The Magi of whom those kids shared the story so eloquently, that the Magi see in a world innocent of streetlights and electricity and the light bulb. We don't have those either, it turns out, anymore. But in that world... They became enamored with the night sky, the stars, the planet, the moons. They, they became enamored with that. It was an art form for them. It was a science, especially in regions east of Palestine. They, they studied them diligently. They believed, these cultures, that if something happened significant on, on earth, you could expect to see it reflected in the stars. They believed that if something significant happened in the stars, you could anticipate seeing it happen on the planet. Now, we don't know exactly what they saw, but apparently that's what happened. They saw something. And scholars speculate, men much smarter than myself, women much smarter than myself, have wondered. We, we know, first of all, that Halley's Comet passed through the night sky in 12 BC. Maybe that's what they saw. Seems a little early. Some suggest that it was a supernova. Trouble is, I don't even know what a supernova is. Some say, and this seems most plausible, that in 7 BC, two planets came into alignment on three separate occasions. Jupiter and Saturn. Now, where this gets interesting is we know historically that these Eastern peoples, they saw Jupiter as the king planet. They saw Saturn as the Jewish planet. When something happened with Jupiter, they assumed somewhere, 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 something was happening with a king. When something happened with Jupiter, they assumed something was happening in the land of Israel. And on three occasions, these two planets intersected. Now, is that what they saw? We don't know. What we do know is it sent these magi, these men with the resource and means to travel into a land called Palestine in order to ask a question, who's the baby in the manger? Like, who, who was that? Matthew, the author of the first gospel, the, Matthew from, the, the gospel from whom those kids read, uh, a gospel that is written by a Jewish man, he asked the question. But he answers it in a very Jewish way. See, Jews, they, they ask questions. Jesus, in particular, asked questions. And he told stories. One of the troubles with Jesus it's hard to pin him down because he didn't offer his information like we would as Western Americans, as Western thinkers in general. He offered his information in the form of narrative, in the form of questions. And so Matthew opens his gospel. And what Matthew notes is the incredible similarity between Moses and this baby born in Palestine. See, Moses was born in an empire. He was born into an empire that resented the notion that that the Jewish people might have their own leader, and might somehow escape the slavery of Egypt. Jesus, too, was born in such an empire. Moses was born into an empire in which the the, the parents were in very impoverished situations. So was Jesus. Moses escaped miraculously. He he escaped by the River Nile into the Pharaoh's own household, where he was raised as one of his own. Jesus, ironically, escaped into Egypt. Moses' birth sparked a couple years later infanticide where every male child, two years old and younger, was killed for threat of this leader that had risen up. And both Moses and Jesus ultimately had a showdown with the authority. Moses with Pharaoh, Jesus with Herod and Caesar, and the religious establishment. And Matthew's gospel And if you dare re-engage the question, who was the baby in the manger, I would invite you to engage the Gospel of Matthew. Download the YouVersion Bible app, grab a Bible, dust one off from somewhere, some bookshelf in your house. And what Matthew is saying is, come consider who was this baby in the manger. And if, in fact, he was king, what are the implications of that? Now, one of the more common accusations made of, of Christ followers is that we make claims of Jesus that he never made of himself. We, we oftentimes are accused of, of saying that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. And dare I say, to say that is, it's a misunderstanding of their style. It's a misunderstanding of a God who would much rather you ask the question because then you own the answer than he would put it on your windshield or on a billboard or on a church marquee board. But Jesus does weigh in in his own fashion. In fact, in Matthew 12, you, you may remember there's this time where Jesus was walking through this field and his guys were hungry. And the guys, the, the field was ripe for harvest. And so the guys started picking grain and eating the grain. And the, and the religious establishment, they observed this was occurring and they became furious. They began to accuse Jesus of, of breaking the Sabbath, something that was held in very high regard. And Jesus goes off in this long dialogue about what the, what the Sabbath was and wasn't about. But really, what he does is he tells a story. And in the story is his own, well, his own two cents on who he was. But he answered them, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Now this gets heavy sledding for just a couple minutes, and then I'll get out of your way, and the band can get back up here. But just come with me here. Jesus tells a story about a time where King David, King David, uh, he, remember King David was anointed king. Saul poured oil on David's head and declared him as king. But do you remember, excuse me, Samuel poured oil on his head and declared him as king. But the problem was there already was a king in Israel. His name was Saul and he didn't like competition. And so Saul was trying to kill David because now you had this new anointed king who was claiming to be king and whose priests were saying he was king. And so in the moment, this story Jesus tells is of a time where David was on the the run for his life. He went to Shiloh, which is where the temple of God was at the time. He went into the temple, and the priests gave him the holy bread. Now, of course, the priest is making a statement about who he thinks the king was, but Jesus is also making a statement. Not the bony finger kind of way that we're used to, but Jesus is making a statement. See, he's claiming to the Jews. Do you ever read the story, and then all of a sudden it's like this cute little story, and then all of a sudden it's like and everyone wanted to kill him, and you're like, what just happened? I don't understand what just happened. Well, what just happened was Jesus referenced a story for a very specific reason. He's saying, I'm the anointed king. At my baptism, when my father said, "This is my son with whom I am loved, with him I am well pleased," Jesus is claiming, "I'm the anointed king." but I'm not yet enthroned. And the reason there I want to kill him is they recognize he just claimed to be the king. See, Jesus and David and Moses' story, they're very similar, but they're also very different in their own way. Moses, David, they were enthroned in the way you would expect a king to be enthroned. Jesus, his enthronement was the cross. Jesus' claim is that he became king at the cross, and at the resurrection. I was talking to a friend just a couple weeks ago, and he was sharing with me that that the single best decision he made in 2014 was to start seeing a therapist. And this therapist is a a Christ follower, but it's not a Christian therapist, whatever that means. And he was sharing the implications of seeing this therapist and all the different ways his life was changing as a result of that decision. And as he was talking, and as I reflected on that later, I thought, this is is a man... uh, much like myself and many of you who long ago developed his own convicted decision about who the baby in the manger was. And now he's doing the work of dealing with the implications of what it means that Jesus is king. Now he's doing the work of going, okay, you're, you're, you're God, you're savior, but what does it mean for you to be my king? See, we all have something in common with Saul and with David Excuse me, with Saul and with Pharaoh and Herod, with Caesar. They all had something in common, and we have it in common with them. Kings don't like competition. People in control don't like to be told they're not in control anymore. We like to retain it for ourselves. And at Christmas, we come up next to a historic moment where a baby was placed in a manger, and we wonder who was the baby. And as Matthew says, should you discover him to be king, king of the world, then you must then deal with the question, what does it mean for this baby to be my king? Listen, if you're here and, and you long ago came to your own decision that Jesus wasn't God, that that baby wasn't God in the manger, my, my challenge to you is just to, to keep the idea suspended for just a moment that you're wrong to maintain that, the humility required to go, maybe I need to relook at the question. And if you're someone that long ago decided he was the baby in the manger, could I just challenge you? Because I, I know I'm, I'm like you. We walk away from this and, and Christmas has very little to do with God and a whole lot to do with a lot of other things, some of which are great and some not so much. But can I just challenge you to create a little bit of space, maybe tomorrow morning before everyone else gets up, and just hold in suspense this question, God, what does it mean for you to be my king? And is there one area of my empire that I've not yet invited you to be king? Christmas is about questions and some of the most important questions we could ever ask. Let me, let me pray for us and we'll do some more singing. God, it, it frankly is mind-boggling that you as king of the universe would take such a humble approach that though it breaks your heart that people live outside of relationship with you, that you don't force yourself upon anyone. Jesus, we're so grateful that in your life what we see is not much monologue, just lots of story and lots of questions and lots of patience and lots of humility. God, would you make us the types of people who behave as though we know nothing and you know everything. And as you promised uh, in doing that, God, would you keep us near yourself? May we flourish to your glory. God, would you identify areas of our empire that we just haven't handed over? Amen. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.